Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. For the past few days, I've been dipping in and out of this book I found on Amazon. I keep forgetting the title. It's something forgettable. The book is, it's like a two-volume textbook, but the word textbook is used here in the very loosest sense of the term. It seems to be focused on journalism, but it could work just as well as a history textbook, because what it's doing is it's presenting the entire narrative of U.S. American history, but... It is presenting that narrative not with, you know, drawn-out portraiture of its major characters. It focuses solely on the major events in popular culture, in political disputes, uh, whatever. The major events that grabbed front-page headline news. And it presents those events, it recounts those events entirely in the form of, like, the major editorials of the day. The initial 500-word or 2,000-word dramatic portraits that were written about the event in the major newspapers of that day. Early in the book, there's one about the first major Nazi book burning. There's an article covering the first day of Al Capone's IRS trial. And the one I just read this morning was announcing and also kind of narrating and also in a weird way kind of celebrating what was then the breaking news of bank robber John Dillinger's death. John Dillinger was on the run for a while. He was a mostly successful bank robber, to the extent that I remember his track record. And the American press seemed to have with him what it's had with so many people in the ensuing almost hundred years, which is just a love-hate relationship with the fact that they are so incredibly vile that it's interesting. He was a big personality, he was ballsy, he was savvy at what he did, but he was also a fucking piece of shit, thief, and murderer. I think the, the term in psychology is dissonance. What you're thinking and what you're feeling, they don't gel. Or they do gel into a weird kind of, like, anti-hero fetishism that we have always had, I guess, because, yeah, at the end of the day, this country was founded by rebels, people who broke the law, fell away from the pack. Maybe that's why we also love stories of vigilantes and revenge and shit like that. So the way the story goes is that after a long time on the run. Finally, a woman who was in some way involved with Dillinger, I don't remember if it was romantic or what, she was seeing him around at the time and she reported to the feds, hey, I know you're looking for John Dillinger, he's gonna be in this movie theater on this street at this time. So the feds swarmed in, they took positions around the theater, and they waited on the sidewalk and in the bushes and across the street until the movie let out and John Dillinger, mixed in with a crowd of sort of everyday civilian moviegoers, crept out along the sidewalk into the parking lot, presumably toward his car. The details as they're presented in this article are a little bit foggy, but it seems like the feds closed in, one thing led to another, and ultimately, John Dillinger was killed by federal agents. They shot him twice in the back and once in the back of the head. So clearly he was attacking them. Just kidding. Not passing judgment. I wasn't there. Some say the laces were in, some say they were out. What I found striking though is just the tone of like the closing couple paragraphs of the piece. I'm gonna read them to you. This is where Dillinger is dead. Strong arms carried the limp, light form of the man who had been feared by a great government through that grim door of many minor tragedies. It lay on a rubber stretcher. In the basement, the receiving ward of the last public hospice of the doomed, they stripped the fearsome remains. What showed up, nude and pink, still warm, 
was the body of what seemed a boy, the features as though at rest and only an ugly, bleeding hole under the left eye, such as a boy might have gotten in a street fight. His arms were bruised from the fall and the bumping in the wagon, but under the heart were two little black, bleeding holes, clean and fresh. These could not have been anything but what they were. That part of John Dillinger did not look as though it was a boy's hurt. It was the fatal finish of a cold-blooded killer, and not half of what he had given to Officer O'Malley in East Chicago, Indiana, in the bank robbery, when he cut the policeman almost in half with a machine gun. There's something about the tone there. It's like mournful, but it's also kind of amused, the way it's ogling his corpse. And I don't know if the reporter was actually there in whatever, wherever that was, the morgue, I guess, to see the naked dead body. But there's something invasive there. There's something kind of celebratory, something kind of mournful. It just seems like the kind of thing that would never fly in modern newspaper print. The novelist Norman Mailer, who tended to make more sense in conversation than he did in his books, once said during an interview that if the task of the novelist is like moral inquiry and the exploration of moral ambiguities, then the journalist's job is to supply the quickest moral assessment of the day's news. And I remember being puzzled by that assessment because it sounds like almost the exact opposite of what a reporter is supposed to do. They're supposed to see what happened, learn what happened, and then report it objectively so that the news reader can take in the facts and come to their own conclusions. But now, as I'm reading this article from 1933, at which point Norman Mailer was 10 years old and probably glancing at newspapers, if not reading them consistently, his remark makes a different kind of sense. Consider the popularity of podcasts and talking head news shows on CNN or, or any channel on Sunday morning. Consider the popularity of pre- and post-game sports commentary shows. People love punditry. People love commentary, especially when the context that is being provided by one of these talking heads on whichever issue of the day complements their own pre-existing biases. It makes sense that the easiest commentary to consume is going to be the stuff that already aligns with a world that you understand, not something that's going to come and punch holes in your moral framework and inject some rude light. It's taxing and frustrating, and it makes you insecure, in other words, to hear someone introduce to you and force you to consider a perspective that also makes you question the moral framework by which you have governed so much of your life. So that's part of it. But part of it, I think, this, this love that we have for punditry might just be what Norman Mailer was saying. That maybe his idea about the press giving you moral judgments along with the news, maybe that's not as dated as it seems. In the course of your daily life, you're worried about work, you're worried about getting to work and performing at work and returning from work, and you're worried about fixing dinner and the well-being of your loved ones. Every one of us is pulled every day in a million different directions. Now, as an independent, intelligent adult, someone who's had life experiences and certain learnings that inform your opinions on things, naturally, or in theory at least, you would want the news to be delivered objectively, unadorned with commentary. You want to be told what happened and who is involved and, and maybe an expert quote or two to show how today's events fall into a certain pattern of events and what can be deduced from those patterns. But when you embark on all that, no, noble as your intentions might be to just read the raw facts and concoct your own narrative, it begs the question of like, where are you supposed to find the time for that? Also, much as we all would like to credit ourselves as independent thinkers, how often has it been the case for you in the past two years, whether it had to do with the war in Ukraine or the war in Gaza or one of Donald Trump's four different criminal trials and two different civil trials? How often have you looked at some development in one of those news stories and thought, okay, 
Is that good? Because shit's complicated, and it's all happening at once. Different venues not only report different interpretations of the facts, they often report different facts. And it's valuable, in that case, to hear the input of people whose job is not only to report these stories, but to follow them, to keep track of every development, to make sense of the disparate details of a long chain of events and weave that shit into a narrative that the rest of us can understand. That understanding that they, they accrue over the course of several weeks or months or years is going to be biased. If you're getting opinions about the war in Ukraine from a reporter who is over there, on the ground who just saw her cameraman's leg blown off yesterday, the emotional toll of that experience is going to influence at least the tone of what that reporter is discussing. And in that case, what you are free to do, and what I guess you have no choice but to do, is to assess these different outlets, these different talking heads, try to gauge their biases on your own, and then you direct your trust accordingly. There's a book by Jonathan Franzen, and I know that there are deductions to be made about, like, my reading habits based on the two dudes I'm quoting here, but Franzen wrote a novel called Purity, and it has a lot to do with journalism, investigative journalism, and it focuses largely on a, a Julian Assange type of character. He's, he's a hacker, he's a leaker. What he routinely does is he steals huge data dumps of random government intelligence. Doesn't matter which government, doesn't matter what the documents pertain to. All he cares about is acquiring those documents and then throwing them out into the world. Doesn't care about who gets hurt, doesn't care about the geopolitical ramifications of divulging all this stuff. The character's only loyalty is to transparency, what he construes as like the purity of information. Stolen from, you know, the desks of power and disseminated across the internet straight to the average citizen who's free to read it and, and deduce whatever they want to deduce. And one of Franzen's characters, a reporter, he makes the case that when a guy like Julian Assange dumps 18,000 pages of classified information into the public, none of that is really news until you get some people together who are going to sit in a room and read it. And it can't just be like a proficient reader who's doing it. You need like 15 proficient readers who are going to divide that shit into 15 different workloads and then they're going to convene and compare their notes and working together they're going to come up with a narrative that we can digest, that they can contextualize and explain. And if it's not a WikiLeaks data dump that they're going through, it can be something as, you know, regular seeming as the 400-page Mueller report or the 9-11 Commission report. Periodically there is a major document dump. It falls from the heights of power out into the public and you're free to read them yourself, but it's just not feasible for most of us to do that. What we end up needing is for someone to come along and summarize those data dumps for us. And that can be a blow to your ego already, having to concede the fact that, okay, I don't trust myself to look at this information and connect the dots. But what's even worse is having to acknowledge that sometimes even the summaries are too dense, too esoteric. And so we need someone to translate the summary, someone to tell us if we need to be concerned about this thing in our daily lives. It might seem like an antiquated thing or a toxic thing or a revelatory thing to have reporters presenting like a moral or ethical verdict on the news as they are reporting it. But what I myself am kind of just thinking about for the first time is how much of my news consumption is devoted not like reportage necessarily, but to the reading of explainers, the reading of some expert's effort to contextualize whatever it is that's going on. Whether or not that seems fair is, I guess, a matter of opinion.